Hey, Tome Show listeners, it's time for Gen Con 2012, and this recording is coming to you straight from the con. That's right. We present to you here an unedited recording straight from the best four days in gaming. But be aware of what that means. We did not dictate the content. We are not censoring for language. And while our editor, Sam, will try to make the sound as good as possible, we're in a large room trying to capture as much sound as possible. So it may not be as crisp and clear as you're used to. With that said, we as always have to give credit to the folks who help us pay the bills around here, and that's Continue Magazine. It's a quarterly magazine for all sorts of gamers. Video, board, card, mini, and of course RPGs. Be sure to swing by ContinueMag.com, buy a magazine, and tell them thank you for supporting the podcast. Well, without further ado, your Gen Con 2012 recording. Whichever one it happens to be this time around. Enjoy! D&D Next Creating the Core uh, panel. This is one we actually did the day before yesterday. How many of you were at uh, the Thursday version of this panel? Okay, so a few of you. Uh, that means those of you who were there uh, day before yesterday will get to hear a number of things again, but because a lot of this panel will involve uh, questions and answers, I'm sure even those of you who were here before will hear something new. Uh, so this, this panel is uh, all about uh, the thinking behind the creation of uh, the core rules for the next edition of Dungeons & Dragons, as well as the thinking behind uh, creation of the classes and the races, with special emphasis on uh, the four most classic classes, the wizard, the cleric, the fighter, and the rogue, and the four most well-known races, elf, uh, dwarf, human, and halfling. Uh, as most of you know, uh, this weekend we have also made available to you uh, the Warlock and the Sorcerer, so we are likely to touch on those two classes as well. Uh, so to start us off, I'm going to turn to the man on my right who's eating his lunch. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, to uh, first introduce himself, Mike. Hey. So I'm Mike Merles. I'm the senior manager for uh, D&D at Wizards. Um, and I basically am in charge of coordinating everything across, say, like the RPG, board games, video games, all that stuff. And kind of work to make sure that everything is working together, that everything is consistent. And also basically sort of in charge of like, the innovation end of things, kind of plotting our future and where D&D is going to be in five or ten years. And I am Jeremy Crawford. I'm the head of development and editing for the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game. Uh, so if it has to do with the RPG, there's a, there's a high likelihood that I have touched it at some point. Um, and then on my left is uh, Rodney Thompson. Rodney, what do you do at Wizards of the Coast? I am a designer for Dungeons & Dragons. I also have worked on some of the board games. I designed Lords of Waterdeep. I uh, helped design Dungeon Command. And uh, on D&D Next, I serve as the, uh, the head of final design. Yeah. So and what, what that means is as, as the design goes through its initial phases, it ends up with Rodney, and uh, he, he puts it into its final form until handing it over to me, and then I, I beat the hell out of it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and then I beat the hell out of Rodney. Right. <laughs> literally. literally. Yeah, seriously, I am physically abused. <laughs> if you've seen our art by the... Uh, Creative director John Shindahedi with his, his uh, crutch and cane. That's, that's this guy. Yeah. 
You wouldn't think it with the, the, the smooth, dulcet tone. <laughs> You're right. Could, this, uh... this is actually an intervention today, everybody. <laughs> here. This is going to be anger management for Jeremy Crawford. Jeremy, I want to tell you how you've hurt me over the years. <laughs> All right. So right before you take another bite of pizza, Mike, um, <laughs> please... We're doing this on purpose. Yes. We, we like to torment you. Uh, please uh, tell us about uh, the general approach to D&D Next, the thinking behind uh, the game's <laughs> core design. <laughs> Game's kind of like a delicious piece of pizza. <laughs> it is mighty delicious. That you're about to eat because you haven't eaten in 16 hours. <laughs> so, no, I'm kidding. The, uh, I was actually smart and had breakfast this morning, but the. Uh, uh, so, uh, what was the question again? Was someone pizza? Yeah. It, uh, it, the question was what kind of pizza are you having for lunch? It's like some sort of, uh, I think there is spinach involved and a cheese that is not the usual cheese, but it's still pretty good. <laughs> All right. So, the other question was. Um, Tell us a bit about the general thinking uh, behind the design of the next okay. edition. So uh, it's basically the idea is, uh, it's kind of funny, I'm sure I've answered this question a hundred times, and I, I don't know if I ever always give the exact same answer. But the, um, the basic idea behind it, there's really two things. Uh, and actually, we can kind of change how we talk about it a little bit, because the keynotes and the stuff we talked about there. Um, so the main thing is really creating a game that in its core essence is really recognizable as D&D. That you, know, you look at the character classes, the rules. Hey, you think this is D and D? Of course, this is D and D. Like one of the things we talked about was to make sure, like, hey, if you were to take all the editions of D and D and look at the mechanics, and this is just talking about rules. I'll talk about story next. And if you were to see that mechanic used elsewhere, you'd think, hey, these guys stole this from D and D, or this game is based on D and D, or it's a D and D like game. So the elements of it, all recognizable D and D, all clearly D and D. So to start there and then build outward so that we could have a game where it doesn't matter what edition you played, when you started playing. Um, and this is something we really think about, not only just beyond, you know, but, you know, edition wars and all that stuff, but just we want, if someone is, say, maybe they played D&D in 1985 when they were 12 and they have kids today and want to start playing D&D again, it's a lot easier if that adult parent sees a game that they recognize. You know, oh, this is the D&D I remember, right? They're not trying to go back and have to relearn everything. So it kind of helps bridge those generational gaps. And I think it's something that's become more and more important as we go forward. You know, so the children of the 80s are having children today, you know, or have you know, kids who are old enough now that playing D&D with them would make sense. The, um, so that's a lot of that there. It's recognizable D&D. And also since D&D is always a game that's got a lot of you know, house ruling, is just part of it, kind of making the game your own, everyone plays D&D in a slightly different way. No, no two campaigns are identical. We wanted a game that had a lot of modularity to it. So you could have to start with a very simple core and then add things like if you wanted to use miniatures for combat, if you uh, want to use a different system for warding XP, story-based XP versus XP for fighting monsters, things like that. You had a lot of flexibility as a DM and as a player between the character classes and the options we offer for those character classes to play the game that you want to play. Uh, and then on the other side of it, um, the story side, you know, it's really, uh, and I talked about this a bit at the keynote, we really want to work on this game in a very open way, transparent manner, the public play tests, because we feel that once we get the game done, we want to move beyond game mechanics and really focus on story. Uh, Storylines in the Forgotten Realms, new settings, new villains, new threats to the world, things like that, adventures, things that are really the fuel of what that keeps D&D going. I mean, that's what you play, right? You don't get together with your friends to just make characters every week. I mean, you might do that for one session, but you don't spend a year looking at all the characters we made and without actually playing, right? The, uh, but that's really the fuel that keeps D&D going, and that's something that when we deliver it, you know, it, it, you can even look at that as, like, it doesn't really matter what edition that you play. If it's a great adventure, it's a great adventure. And so even beyond that, you know, bridging those gaps. 
and giving people interesting stories or just interesting you know, hex crawls or dungeon crawls or just really interesting narratives and villains and that sort of thing. And really, it's about when we build the, the rules, you, know, you look at what we've done with like specialties and backgrounds, where we start and kind of where we want to go, make those really elements of the world and not just elements of the mechanics. Where you think, hey, if your character can cleave, it's not just because you chose cleave and it gives you extra attack and you drop a guy. It's because, oh, okay, this is the, the, the fighter style you've chosen. Or your character's a monster slayer or something like that. You can tie it back to the world. And obviously, you know, if, again, if you look at the character creation, I can't remember if we made this explicit in the packet, but, you know, we have, like, these specialties and backgrounds that speak to your place in the world. I mean, we also let you break those down to their component parts and make your own. I think making your own is a big part of D&D. But we want to, when we're providing with something, we want to give it context. We want to fit it into the world of D&D. We want to have it make sense. So you're building a character. You're not just building a collection of stats. And, and as a part of this effort of making a version of D&D that is recognizable as Dungeons & Dragons to people who have been playing the game for decades, as well as recognizable as, oh, that's that, that tabletop role-playing game of high fantasy that everyone talks about, part of that effort has involved something that we've talked about quite a bit, and that is looking at all of the editions of the game, looking at the things that are the most resonant, the most fun, uh, the things that have had the longest life, and making sure that those things find their way uh, into this new edition of the game. And, and so in, in some ways, taking all the greatest hits. Now, what this doesn't mean, and because sometimes people think, oh, does that mean they're literally taking the mechanic from second edition and this other rule from third and this other rule from fourth and just smashing them together? That is not what we mean. What we mean is looking at... Uh, well, because that, that path would lead to, again, a sort of a Frankenstein's monster of a game. What, what we are doing is looking at those greatest hits things, looking at maybe some element of the rogue in first edition that really resonated with people, and making sure we preserve the spirit of it, but in a way that coheres with all of the other pieces, and, and, the, and making sure they all cohere into a modern version of the game. So certainly a version of the game that has a lot of respect for previous editions and also a, a healthy dose of nostalgia, but at the same time includes many advances in the game, you know, particularly at the core level of the game. Uh, Mike mentioned having a simple core system. Uh, one, of, one of the high priorities we have is making a set of rules that people will use that are so so reliably sound and easy to remember that you can go from D&D game to D&D game and no matter what options the DM has decided to layer on top of that simple core, people always have a guiding star. They always know how the basics of the game work. They always know that, hey, for most tasks, we're using our ability scores. Uh, for, you know, I know how combat works. Even if that DM is using a grid, I know how things are. I know how my character abilities are going to translate onto a grid. Uh, so we want, again, for all of this modularity that we keep talking about, for all of these options to work, there has to be that simple, really clear core. And that's why what you've seen so far in the player packets have been the rules have been pretty tight. And there, are, there, there are pieces that we've grown accustomed to being present, especially those of us who've played a lot of third and fourth edition. There are pieces that we look at the rules and say, where did they go? And many of those are, are not there intentionally. 
There are a few others that might find their way back into the core rules, but still others that will find their way into a rules module, an optional piece of the game that a DM and his or her players will decide to add to that basic experience. Yeah, one of the, the earliest steps in the process that we went through was we sat down and we talked about what are the common elements that you can say really form the basic language of D&D culture, right? I mean, if I looked at you and said, that guy over there has got a charisma of 18, you know what that means because you know what charisma is and you know that 18 is a high stat. And, you know, we, we always see references in pop culture to, you know, things in D&D. We figured out what those sort of basic most common elements were that everyone could really recognize, terminology, mechanics, what have you, and that formed our core because what our, what our core does is it acts like a translator. It basically says no matter what modules you've got on the outside, whether you're using grid-based combat or if you've got a, we've got mass combat or whatever. Or laser guns. Or laser guns. He knows I love lasers. Um, that all translates through that very simple common core system so that then on the other end, if you've got an adventure that you've you know, designed or the, that you've purchased from us or what have you, that adventure can use that, that common language. And no matter what you've decided to add your campaign on the other side or add your character on the other side, it all interacts through that core system in a satisfying way. And hopefully what will end up happening is that you'll take those adventures and you can run the adventures that, that are, you know, an adventure is a, is a designed and sort of finite thing, but you could run it in whatever way you want using the modules that you've chosen on the other side. But the only way we can do that is by having that lean core system to translate everything through. One, one of the, the key parts of our work, not only on the core system, but also on classes and monsters and races and magic items, is balancing the need uh, to have very solid and fun gameplay with the need for game elements that tell a great story. And a perfect example of this might be a little invisible at first. You, you might have noticed in our packets that we cap player character ability scores now at 20. And there are, there are, there are a number of reasons uh, for us doing that, but I'll just dwell on two right now because they, they illustrate the two sides that I'm talking about. Uh, the gameplay side and the story side. The gameplay side is across the board in the new edition, we are trying to bring the numbers down because uh, we know over the last 10 years the trend has been just numbers exploding everywhere. And I mean, to the point where you know you might have a high level character who has you know a 30 or more in an ability score, and frankly, I don't even the world know what that means. Um, you know, especially if we've been telling you for you know 30 plus years that an 18 is the normal human maximum, and so like, hey, Einstein is probably ha has 18 intelligence. What does it mean? when a person has a 30 intelligence. Um, and, and so that's, that's sort of that's the story side. Uh, and then the gameplay side is, again, get those numbers under control because the more we control number inflation, the more we can actually keep different elements of the game relevant through the life of a campaign. So we can make it so that, and this is something we talked about in the DM seminar yesterday, it means you can have orcs that you encounter at low levels and you can keep encountering them at higher levels because the numbers in the game have not inflated so much that those lower level, lower level elements of the game, such as orcs, they haven't become irrelevant. And there's not pressure on us to create you know, the level 25 orc to be relevant to the higher level characters. 
let's talk uh, specifically. I'll wait for you to finish, so I'll turn to Rodney instead. Um, I'm not stuffing my face. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, Rodney, uh, let's talk about classes. Sure. What would you like to talk about? Uh, just our general thinking about the classes okay. um, and, and focusing on the core four. Sure. So um, one of the things we've been talking a lot about lately with the core four is that those classes, uh, not only do they sort of form the basis of what everybody thinks about as iconic D&D, but they also tend to encompass the broadest swath of archetypes. Um, you look at the fighter, for example. It's a great uh, example of a class that has been used to create a wide variety of different characters. I mean, you create your sword and board fighter, your guy with a big, huge weapon, or your archer, or even you know your unarmed combatant. Your I had a guy played a effectively played a Mexican wrestler in my, one of my third edition campaigns using the fighter class, right? That class encompasses a really, really broad spectrum of character archetypes. And so what, what we're looking at when we approach our, our, especially our core four classes, is thinking about what is the character that you want to create at the end of the day. I mean, a class by itself is just a means to an end. At the end of the day, what's important is the character that you create at the end. So especially our core four, we have to look and say, what are the different types of characters this class needs to be able to make? And so the fighter obviously hits all those different archetypes that I just talked about. But even you look at like the cleric, for example, uh, one of the things that we've recognized is that the cleric has been many things over the years. It's been the, you know, I've got a mace and a shield uh, beater type cleric. But there's also the specialty priest from second edition. And then there's also the sort of mystic spellcaster calling down fire and brimstone from the heavens type cleric. That's, that's a lot of different variety uh, in one class. So what we want to do is make sure that we can find ways to be flexible inside of our core classes while still having each one maintain a certain amount of identity. So like with the cleric, for example, you'll notice that we have our domain system, which our base cleric doesn't actually have uh, heavy armor proficiency, but if you're a cleric of you know, the god of war, you might be able to wear heavy armor and use shields and carry a big heavy mace. We've sort of taken that need for a, like the end result character, the melee beater cleric, and put that option into the cleric without making it define the entire class. Yeah, and, and in general, as, as Rodney is saying, we want, we want each class to speak very vividly to its archetypes. You know, we want we want the wizard to be the most wizardly wizard ever. We want the the fighter to the be to be the most fighty. We want the cleric to the, to be the most priestly. And as Rodney says, that's a challenge with the cleric mm-hmm. uh, because the cleric has had so many forms over the course of of this game's history. Um, uh, we want the you know the rogue to to have the vast array of potential um, expertise areas that rogues have typically had over over the game's life. Uh, one of our goals also with class design has has been to not only make each of those classes speak as vividly as they can to their archetypes, but also make it so that each class is. I'll wait for the door to close. Um, for for each class to be in a form that is the most exciting to people who love that class. And and I say that because over the past 10 years, there have been trends sometimes in class design where it has been about making changes in one class 
because players of another class resent that class. Um, they're mad because of what the wizard can do. They're pissed because the cleric gets to do this other thing. They're mad that the fighter has all that, those hit points. We, we are not at all approaching our design with sort of like the design of resentment. Uh, it instead is about the design. It sounds like, like a novel. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the design of like resentment. Yes, my time in Wizards of the Coast. Yes. <laughs> or or that, will be a, that will be an Oscar an Oscar winning film. No, after In My Time of Yes, dying. after In My Time of Dying. It's my movie I'm going to make after I leave Wizards. Yes. It's going to win an Oscar. It's designed to win an Oscar. Right. Our, our aim is to make people who love fighters love the fighter. People who love the cleric love the cleric. People who love the wizard to love the wizard. It sounds like a very simple thing, but doesn't it? And, and, then kind of, and, and kind of a, and sort of a, an obvious thing. You might think, why is he even bothering to bring this up? But again, a lot of design over the, over the past years has actually been about making the cleric so that people who don't like the cleric are comfortable with the cleric and might want to play it. Instead of focusing first on, are we making the person who likes playing clerics happy? Uh, and again, it's a, it's a really important distinction. And I bring that up with the cleric in particular because there's been a lot of pressure in recent years, uh, often from people who don't like playing clerics, to make it so that clerics can always be bashing something and healing people at the same time or shooting radiant lasers at them. And it turns out, yes, there are some lovers of clerics who like that. And so we're going to make that possible. But it turns out there are also people who've been playing clerics ever since first edition who not only are happy with spending their turns healing, but they don't want to feel like they have to attack people on their turn. The character they want to play is often you know, the compassionate healer who is there to keep their crazy friends alive while their friends are you know, diving into the mouths of purple worms and trying to slay dragons. Um, and so we are not in the business of picking one of those archetypes and saying that archetype is now the cleric. No, we want our cleric class to be flexible enough to encompass both of those approaches. Yeah, we want people who love a class to love this class, but that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right. just as Jeremy's saying, because you know, I love fighters, but I love this kind of fighter. And you, know, you like fighters, but you like this other kind of fighter, or what have you. So the real trick is making sure not that one of us is happy, but rather that the option is there for either one of us to do to get the best experience we can out of that class. Yeah, and this this is why also when you take a look at our most recent version of the fighter, there are suddenly some really great archetype options within the class. It's actually all the ones that Rodney mentioned. Uh, in, in recent years, the baseline assumption for the fighter is this guy is in melee and he's primarily concerned with protecting his friends. And then we, we started to work in other options. You know, we might have the brawler fighter or the slayer who's more concerned with dealing damage. But this time, we're putting in those different paths right in the core. Right. Because again, it turns out some people come to the fighter class because they want to play an archer. Uh, somebody else comes to the fighter class because they want to play a swashbuckling duelist. 
And, and yet another person wants to have you know, this two-handed weapon, like Rodney mentioned, and just hew off heads, and really does not want to pay any mind to their friend's well-being. Well, and that's a terrible combination. You want to cut off heads and you have no concerns people around you? Yeah. <laughs> I think that actually describes many D&D characters. <laughs> Half-orcs, mostly. Yes. Frenzy Berserkers. Yes. Yeah. Anyone had an adventure play with a Frenzy Berserker? It's anyone, hey, yeah, that's boys. Yeah. Come on. It's yeah. Push them through the door and lock the door behind them and go to a different adventure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but then still other people want to play the fighter and play you know, the noble protector. Yeah. And we have provided that archetype as well. And, and, for, and so in our mind, uh, there is no need for us uh, to, again, pick one and say, that's it. No, the, the game is flexible enough and, and has space in it enough for all of the versions of these classes that people have loved. Let's talk about races a little bit. You ready to talk? I'm always ready to talk. Awesome. Just, am I ready to be on, on focus on topic? No, just kidding. The, uh, no, yeah, so what's um, about races? Well, races, are, it's a lot like classes. Um, and to kind of touch, you know, kind of expand on that, uh, I think the trick for us as the R&D guys is I'm willing to bet that if we took everyone in the audience and just gave everyone a piece, a, piece of paper, a piece of paper and said, hey, design the dwarf, you know, whatever edition of D&D you play, whatever, how long you've been playing, just write down what you think a dwarf should do. And I'm willing to bet that each of you would look at it and go, oh, that's a dwarf, that's pretty, pretty clear. And if you were to uh, send these pieces of paper around the room and everyone got a chance to read it, You'd find that maybe half people would go, yeah, that's reasonable. And a quarter would be like, okay, this is a little bit off. And a quarter would be like, what the hell are you thinking? Like, this is way off, right? There's always, there's always that thing of, it's not so much saying, hey, what's a dwarf and getting that essence of it. It's kind of like we were saying with character classes. It's realizing that people kind of see things as a spectrum, you know? Some people see, oh, dwarves, it's, dwarves are really tough. That's what's really important. But some people might say, no, dwarf fighters are cool. Dwarves should be strong, right? That would make sense. They, they work down in mines. And some other people might say, no, dwarves are kind of short, right? We should reflect that in the rules. Because, you know, if the kind of classic AD&D thing, the dwarf walks in front because the human behind him can see over his head, right? And, you know, things like that. So it's just like, well, how do you, you, know, how do you prioritize that? Because we had at one point when we were working on the races, uh, this is before anything was obviously sent up to be playtested you know, by you guys in you know, the open playtest. You know, we had this version of the dwarf, I think, that had like like 15 different abilities. Right? It was at one stage, yes. just like, boom, here's everything a dwarf has ever done, right? And it, it, and you get it all. Yeah, and it's on one. It's like, well, that's kind of neat. But the minute it's like, God, I don't want to have an encyclopedia as my character sheet, right? Like every single thing. So that's really a lot of it is the intersection of making things evocative, but making them evocative with as few words as possible. You know, it's sort of like a, uh, a really like well done, you know, poem or, or, or song, right? Where it's just like it's hitting the notes it has to hit, but not doing anything else. It's not trying too much. It's trying enough. Um, it's the old quote about, you know, a designer's, a designer's work is done when he, when he or she has stopped taking things away. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a lot of what we're doing. It's kind of taking things away and getting to the essence. So, like, for the dwarf, for instance, uh, right now the dwarf is immune to poison because we thought, well, we could give you a bonus on saving throws, right? And that could model something like that. Dwarves have had a resistance to poison in the game since, since they first showed up. But we also have to then think, well, what about the experience of the table, right? This isn't a video game. Like, people have to... Someone at a table has to do this. You know, and there's nothing I and these guys know. I, I'm kind of a nut about this. I hate having to do homework at the D&D table. Like, 
I have to roll a number, and I have to add a number for my character sheet. Then I have to add another number. Then I have to kind of like take a poll, right? Okay, let's take a Gallup poll. Who at the table has something to give me in terms of a bonus, right? And we have to wait for the late returns, and the guy who's gone up to get a piece of pizza. Then there's the guy who's eating pizza at the table, and he can't talk because he's got a mouthful, and he forgets. And then he reminds you after you rolled and around later, oh, by the way, you should have just died because I made you immune to poison because we had Heroes Feast this morning, right? Like, uh, okay, I forgot about that, right? The... Uh, you know, and then all that stuff, and also what kind of happens with some of that too is the game really starts becoming about mechanics, right? So, uh, you know, it isn't that, you know, let's say you cast Heroes Feast, you know, they're the three E spell. It isn't that you get to describe, oh, it's this cool thing, you know, I sanctify this meal and we all enjoy it, you know, we're passed to the gods where we go off into battle. Or if you're kind of like me and you're a little bit kind of weird as role-playing, like playing jesters, like, it's taco time, right? Like, it's tacos. And, like, and the other players have no idea what's going on. But, but, you know, what happens is with all those rules, if it's a volume of rules, rather than, like, one big effect or a small number of really vivid things, I think it does, the game starts to lose that vividness in terms of the fiction, because it isn't that you've just sat down and had this sanctified meal. It's, okay, I sat down and I got, and I can't remember all the Heroes Feast benefits, but it's like, you got a bonus against poisons, and a bonus against this, and you got some temporary hit points, and you have this thing, and now you have plus four against fear, but only if the fear thing, blah, blah, you know, it's all these especially conditional things. So it takes it from being this really vivid thing, you know, like, oh, I found the three-bladed sword that shoots its blades at people, that's so cool, and it turns it into being like, what's oh, this thing, it gives me a range basic attack, and I get this bonus on my opportunity attack, so I can parry at plus two if I have this, but, you know, it, it drains all the drama out of it, right? It's like the classic thing of, you know, if, if the Lord of the Rings characters, and I'm sure I've used this joke already to this con, but if they were, and I'm sure you've heard it, but if they were D&D characters, they would have, you know, kept the ring, because it's cool, I get a sneak attack damage around my house, right? <laughs> get rid of it, right? You know, at the very least, just sneak attack Gollum once before you throw it away. You know? Or, like, kind of fame. Maybe it's, you know, maybe kind of keep it, whatever. But the, uh, so really with the braces and stuff, that's why I think you've seen us take, try to pair that list back, but make what, what's on that list really vivid. And then on top of that, one of the things we've kind of trotted out for the playtest is this idea, like, hey, we don't have just have a dwarf. We have different types of dwarves. So you want to be able to play a dwarf, and you get that very core identity, then you get that kind of twist on it, you know? And I always like actually to use Dragonlance uh, as an example of this, because if you remember, if you've read the Dragonlance books, there's the idea of the hill dwarves who were cast out of, uh, cast out of Thorbarton and the other dwarves, the mountain dwarves, who lived within it and sealed themselves away after the cataclysm. And you could see there's a very big cultural difference between these guys, you know. The hill dwarves, Flint Fireforge is a wood carver, you know, which is kind of different. And especially when I read it as a kid, you think dwarves as miners. Well, no, this is a dwarf who works with wood because he doesn't live underground. He's not a miner anymore as opposed to the dwarves who still live within the mountain and are miners and things like that. So let's just come up with a little more detail, a little more finesse. And also, mechanically, you can say, hey, I want to play the big, burly, strong dwarf. Well, and I'll just, I can't remember exactly what we have in the packet, but it might be, okay, in Dragonlance, you want to play the mountain dwarf, because you are, you were a miner growing up. You were, you lived in this subterranean environment, right? Everyone. They're actually the ones with the great armor. Yeah, exactly, right? And you have the better armor and something like that. As opposed to the hill dwarves, might be, oh, they're better at diplomacy. They've worked with the other races. They're more outdoorsmen, you know, things like that, because that's where, that's, they're culturally. So it kind of lets us get, like, the, the nature and nurture. You can say, well, the nature of a dwarf is X, Y, and Z. And then the kind of nurture their culture is this other element that we can then add. Similarly, uh, the elf in the current packet, you know, you pick elf. Elves have certain common abilities, but then you decide, are you a wood elf or, or are you a high elf? So, again, we have very much embraced the concept of subrace that has existed in D&D in some form or another in all of its editions, uh, but we, are, we have brought it into the core versions of the races. Yeah. 
And it's even something we talked about. We haven't done this yet. We've kind of thought about it. So the, um, for humans, doing something similar where you might say, okay, I want to play a human, but then you might kind of pick like, well, what kind of climate or what kind of culture are you from? So you might say, okay, I'm a human, but I'm from this really caste-based society. So now I'm going to pick a caste and that's going to change things. Or I'm from the frozen north or I'm from, you know, the uh, equatorial islands or something like that. And it gives you a very different feel to your character. So you okay, well, you, you know, you're from the savannah, so, you know, you're a hunter, you have pretty good endurance, you know, you've grown up uh, in, in the outdoors as opposed to a guy from the biggest city in the world in your, in your campaign setting has got street smarts and stuff, you know, things like that. We haven't implemented that, but that's kind of thing we've talked about, and that might be the direction we go based on feedback and how we see these things go. But, but again, kind of like we talked about the classes, it lets us create a range of things rather than just one thing. Um, and the, hopefully, if we do it right, that speaks to a lot more people. And I also think what's exciting to me about it is it maybe lets us capture characters that in the past D&D is kind of required to fudge a little bit. Like if you say, you know, oh, I want to play a guy like Tyrion Lannister, how do I do that? You know, and, and before, I mean, what I'd like you to be able to say is, okay, what makes Tyrion interesting? Well, he's, an, he's a nobleman. Okay, I can do that. And he was kind of crafty. How does that work with the character classes? I mean, there's going to be a little bit of an adjustment. But you can take characters like that and make, you know, I want to make my guy like that. I want to be inspired by some of these characters. And we have words like noble you know, uh, 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 you know, outdoorsmen, explorer, things like that. Yeah, charlatan, right? They're all just there, and they're part of the tropes that make up fantasy, and you can go, okay, I can find these things, and they're there to help guide you. Yeah. Uh, quick question. Uh, please raise your hand if you've read either the most recent uh, playtest packet or the one before that that we released in May. Okay, so, so a lot of you do know, do know what we're talking about. Um, it, you know, one of the pieces that, that Mike was just talking about is a piece of, of our new design that we're very excited about, and that is the character background. Um, it, this is a, a, an approach that sort of leans on the skill systems of the past mixed in with the background systems that have popped up in previous editions, uh, and then sort of with a, a, a new twist in the form of a trait that each background has, and is suddenly this really evocative way for us to let you quite simply pick uh, what your character was before he or she became an adventurer and pick it uh, in, in a very large way. Like you can just decide, I, I was a nobleman or a noblewoman. I was a knight. I was a sage. I was a priest or a thug. And, and suddenly that says a tremendous amount about your character, in addition to helping speed up character creation, because your background delivers to you your starting skills, has, a, has some uh, suggested starting equipment. I don't know if, if those of you who have looked at the packet have noticed that actually many of the, the backgrounds deliver equipment that is not readily available using the equipment list, uh, because the backgrounds often have... Uh, intentionally idiosyncratic things built into them that people who are from that background would have. Um, and often, often we, we sprinkle things into the background equipment list that are there actually as uh, story, potential story hooks for the DM. So the bounty hunter might have you know, a document with a bounty on it. Um, you know, the, 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 an, another background might have you know, a letter uh, from you know, a, a noble aunt or uncle that tells them to do this or that. And so, again, it's a, it's a way to create various seeds for a DM storytelling and for a player's storytelling about his or her own character. Yeah, yeah in a lot of ways, you know, we, we mentioned that the background system leans on the skills pretty heavily in these traits. And, yeah, they are just these wrappers around uh, skills and traits. But I think they're 
they're way more than that because one of the things we've seen throughout our playtesting so far is even experienced players who recognize that this is just a you know it's a selection of feats and era of, of skills and a trade and some equipment once you put those all together into a single package that has a really flavorful thing uh, you know like a noble or a knight or what have you all of a sudden even ex like really experienced players seem to glom onto that and it steers the way they design the rest of their story and the way they play. And, and actually, I wanted to mention when we were talking about sub-races, one of the great things we saw early on with sub-races is, yeah, it gives you some options when you're building your character. I'm going to play a hill dwarf or a mountain dwarf. It's, it's fun to have those choices and build the character the way you want to. But one of the things we saw, I had an early play test where I had uh, around six players and three of them played dwarves. And two of them played mountain dwarves and one of them played a hill dwarf. And they mostly made those choices for whatever mechanical reasons. But as soon as we sat down at the table, all of a sudden there's this two versus one. Yeah, we're the mountain dwarves, you're the hill dwarf, like rival football teams kind of, uh, kind of mentality between the players. And you know, these are professional game designers with years and years of experience jumping right in just by having the phrase mountain dwarf or hill dwarf on your character sheet. Or... Uh, uh, one of our editors, Jennifer, had like she loves playing, you know, the noble or whatever because she gets to act all imperious as a result of it. Now, Jennifer could have just made a character and decided that she was going to be imperious and demanding or what have you, but just having that element built right into the system and seeing that phrase on your character sheet, I think is really, really powerful as a signpost for how you're going to play your character and how it's going to act the world. And more than that, it's a flag that you raise to the DM and you say, I'm interested in this kind of story. Yeah. I built a knight because I'm interested in the kind of stories that a knight would participate in. So the DM, in turn, can look and see, okay, I've got a knight, I've got a noble, I want to do some sort of Game of Thrones-like story, so I already know what my players are interested in by the choices they made story-wise. So when I design my adventures, I'm designing adventures for my players. See, that's like the, the benevolent version of it. My sure, version of it is version. the backgrounds tell me what buildings the goblins burn down. Like, so for right. noblemen, I know they go right after the manor house. <laughs> night, they just go right after the stables. You know, this is like hidden where it hurts, right? So, Back, so in other words, backgrounds paint targets on exactly. things. Exactly. Because yeah. it's the classic in D&D. Everyone's like, oh, you know, when you ask someone, what's the background of your character? Who are your parents? Oh, my parents are all dead. I have no living relatives and I've not <laughs> spoken to anyone for 10 years. <laughs> you cannot get to me, right? I'm it's a like, wanderer with nowhere to call Exactly. Yeah. Nothing you can hold against me. It, it's funny, and, and here this is a purely academic aside. When when players are doing that, they're practicing classic uh, folktale uh, telling. Because in almost all classic folktales, the main characters, like their parents are all dead, you know, they're living with some wicked stepmother, or you know, there's some some orphan-like situation going it's on. It's like it's like Knight Rider or Michael Knight didn't know it's just like the evil stepmother. That's right. right. Yes, exactly. And and he was talked to by little mice. Exactly. It scares me how often Mike starts for sentences with it's just like Knight Rider. <laughs> so I just love that car. I can't help it. Uh, what, one of one of the things we also love about the background system, and this is going back to this whole idea of letting people play the, the version of Dungeons and Dragons they want to play, and, and since we're specifically talking about players, play the types of characters they want to play. Because simply taking the three pieces we've talked about uh, so far in detail, class, race, and background, you can create a huge array of characters who are wildly different from each other. I mean, you could take uh, you know, you could take the priest background and have the class actually be rogue. 
you know, you could have this, and then and, and suddenly you have this story possibly about this disgraced priest, or maybe because of some corruption he or she discovered in their temple, uh, they lost their faith, and, and then were thrown out of, the, of their temple hierarchy and turned to a life of crime. Um, and, you know, similarly, you can have what? Nothing. I'm just enjoying your story. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were about to say something. Just like I rogue a little bit, then I'm going to rogue the entire panel. Right. right? It's yeah. a long show, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, it's fine. No, I thought, I thought you wanted to, to add to the tale uh, I was of, the, of the priest. I was by our priest who's fallen from grace. Yeah, so yeah but see, it's, it's awesome. I love our background it's, system. It is it's really cool, right? That's the entire point is to focus on role-playing, right? It's yeah. a role-playing game. This isn't a, mini- a miniatures game or a game of just trying to get bigger numbers, right? I mean, some, some people like that, and that's cool. But I think when we say, hey, we're making a role-playing game, we should put roles in it. And in the sense of roles are going to play like characters, not like, well, I'm here to not make sure no one else gets hurt, right? I mean, it's useful. People like having that kind of role, like a mechanical role. But I think also the memorable thing is, oh, this is what my character's like. Oh, this is the character I played who... uh, was cursed by a witch to be polymorph to look exactly like this horrible war criminal warlord that everyone in, in the, this kingdom hates, and so I had to spend the next month like trying not to get lynched, right? Like things like that. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, another great example. I think I gave this one uh, day before yesterday. Is we you can do really natural connections with background and class. So you could you could decide to have a wizard whose background is sage. I mean that's very natural connection. But you could also have a rogue who's a sage. And suddenly you could have a character who's basically Indiana Jones, where you know the, the character is not a criminal, but instead is basically like a college professor who knows all sorts of lore and goes on adventures and relies far more on his wits than his brawn. Uh, because we all know that if Indiana Jones was a D&D character, he would not be a fighter because he spends so much of the time getting the crap beat out of him uh, by, by his foes. It's amazing how often in those movies he's getting punched in the face. Um, so again, I mean, we could just go on and on. I mean, this is what I mean. It's like it's this. It, it's like the, I'm thinking almost of uh, one of the the slot machines where you know you can you have each of these pieces they twirl around in each combination. It's like wow, this that's a new awesome character. And, and when you factor in race, the sub race, the the options just keep expanding and expanding and expanding. Yeah, well, and hopefully it's a slot machine where everything wins. It's yes, <laughs> you don't you don't get the wah wah <laughs> and no coins come out. Yeah. Yeah, com- combinations are really, really powerful. And I think that one of the things we saw uh, with the Gamma World game that we did was in Gamma World, you know, you basically create a character by mixing two things off the same chart. So I'm like a, I'm a Yeti android, right? Well, or I'm a, you know, I'm a, what is it, the Felinoid Swarm, right? What does that mean? I'm a bunch of sentient kittens, right? So, <laughs> the thing is, like, we all laugh, and that's funny, but... I would never have said, what do you want to play in Game World? Hmm, I think I want to play a, a, a swarm of sentient kittens. Right? No, but like when I got those two things that were then combined, all of a sudden a hilarious character emerged from that. Right? And I think that that's one of the things that we'll see in, with these backgrounds, especially using classes and races, is that as players combine those, that will fire up your creativity to come up with a, a more vivid character. Yeah, and in some ways, it's kind of the idea that you know people are more creative when you give them restraints, yeah. you know, and they have they have things they have to sort of obey because then you're going to start getting clever, right? Like it's the idea, that, you know, when you uh, the more that you're trying to be creative, I mean, it's kind of self-evident. But if you have to be creative, like here are these two things, how do I link them together? That's what we're going to help like spur some creativity. No, obviously, we, we want to give everyone the option 
to build your own backgrounds, right. build your own specialties by just you know taking themes and sorry feats off the shelf or, or skills and traits and things like that. But you know, one of the things I thought I think would be cool to have in the game is like so some random tables. You just you throw some dice and it's going to give you well, what's your background, what's your specialty, and then and maybe you can roll your class where you want to get completely crazy right. and just and use use an array of ability scores. Just you know, kind of how does this character make sense and kind of spur stories out of that. It, sort of a, a, a useful bit of playtest data that we can give you um, about us playing the game, and, and this has been a fascinating thing to see among among a group of professional game designers is, you know, we, we know the feats and the skills that make up our backgrounds and specialties inside and out, and we could create the most optimal builds possible, um, and, and in this case, optimal for combat, yet we pretty much never exercise that option because we find the background approach so evocative you know, and, and also the specialty approach, which we haven't talked mm. too much about yet, so evocative. That's like, well, yeah, I could, I could go to the buffet and build this meal for myself, but there's this great entree they're offering. You know, it says bounty hunter. I, I want to be a bounty hunter, and so we just we we tip, tend to pick the the pre-built backgrounds and specialties and run with them. Yeah, but I mean, you know. Some people like buffets. Yeah, right? that's true. So, and that's, and that's, and that's again, really cool. And again, sticking with our approach of letting people play the kind of game they want to play, we will give you the buffet. Yeah. So if, if, you want to, if you want to bypass you know, backgrounds, for instance, you'll be able to do that. You, either by creating your own or ignoring the concept entirely and just diving into the, the game mechanics that underlie them. Should we start taking questions? Uh, yeah, let's sure. let's transition into our Q and A phase. Uh, please queue up uh, at the microphone in the middle of the room, and if you have more than one question, uh, please just an- please just ask one, and then get back in the line so that uh, everybody has a chance uh, to to ask at least one question. Also, uh, this is the, I have to say this in all of our panels. Uh, we will not be answering questions about release dates. Uh, about uh, the specific shape of products, like you know, what will be in a theoretical Dungeon Master's Guide, or what will the digital products be. Uh, at this point, we're just talking about the game system and, and are thinking about it. And, and we can also uh, talk about uh, your questions uh, that you might have because of the keynote or things we've said in other panels or things in the playtest packet. All right, please queue on up. Female dwarves have beards. No. Well, actually, no. This is this is the thing we talked about, right? With with female dwarves with beards, we would give female dwarves beards if people were okay with us giving male dwarves breasts. So. <laughs> <laughs> dwarves still have breasts. <laughs> that's that's the deal on the table, no, just... <laughs> Yeah, that's the deal. <laughs> Are you going to have options for multi-classing? Uh, yeah, oh, yes, definitely. Um, so right now, um, one of the things we talked about was making sure we get the core class progressions correct and then loop back and look at what we need to tweak to get multi-classing. Now, the goal is to have a 3E style multi-classing where you can dip into classes, take individual levels. And we really like that for the story purposes. You know, you could play, like for Jeremy's example, of the uh, the rogue with the priest background. You know, you could imagine that cler- character later on taking cleric levels because it represents, oh, now I'm, I'm back in the faith, or, you know, I defeated the, um, 
the heretic who drove me out and then you know, accused me of a crime I did not commit and I got a cool car and became my right myself. <laughs> wow, big <laughs> writer. Um, so, but, but this is a great chance to talk about something that we, we bring up in most of these panels and that is our iterative process. Yeah. Uh, we are uh, relentless in our focus on the core elements of the game right now. Uh, it, is, it is crucial for us to get the core system in a solid state and to get the four core classes in so that they're as best, in the best shape that they can be as well as the classic four races. And you will see over time in the open play test more and more systems uh, slotting in, including multi-classing. Uh, but again, we, we don't want to run so far ahead that there are key elements of the core that still aren't uh, in, in, in as best shape as that they can be. And as a part of this iterative process, you are going to see through the playtest uh, pieces of the core change. I mean, already between the first playtest packet in May and now, a lot of things have changed. Like if you, if you played a fighter in the May 24th playtest packet and now play a fighter this weekend, pretty much an entirely different class. Um, now, other classes, like the wizard, have seen very little change so far. Uh, the main difference between the May 24th wizard and the wizard now was the removal of the, of the previous version of the spell disruption mechanic. But we have, we have other plans for the wizard, uh, just, just as there are um, some really flavorful story options in some of our other classes, like the domain in the cleric, or now that you've seen the warlock and the sorcerer, the sorcerer has their sorceress origin, and the warlock has a pact, well, the wizard is going to get something that is appropriately wizardly in that same place. You can just tell them what it is. I've been telling people. Yeah, the, and I was just about to. <laughs> and that is, and that is a, a, tr a tradition of wizardry. And that tradition of wizardry portion of the class will be where a wizard decides to, say, be a scholastic wizard. And as a part of being a scholastic, you have a, a school of specialization. So that's where school specialization from previous editions will live. Your, your tradition of wizardry might be wild magic. And you know there are there are a whole host of different traditions we can put there. That that's key for us, not only to make wizard players love the wizard because that goes back to one of the goals I was talking about earlier. Also, it's a storytelling element. It helps differentiate one wizard from another and really help explain why wizards sometimes feel so different, not only in our stories but in the sto stories other people tell about wizards whether it's you know, the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. It's also important to us because as we expand out uh, and start dealing with our various settings, we want to make sure that our classes are able to express the great richness that exists in our, in our settings. Um, so we want, a, we want a place in the wizard that can handle, for example, telling you what it means to be a wizard of the white robes in Kryn. And, and we want the wizard to already have built into it a place for that. And so there are actually, there are things that where we have a very long range view where we are building things into the classes, already in the classes that you're seeing now, that will have payoff years from now. Next question. Right, I guess this is a little, little related to what you were just talking about. Uh, in the history of Dungeons & Dragons, there's literally hundreds of classes that have been designed over the years. It also seems that with your new system with the backgrounds and specialties and everything, that you could replicate a lot of character classes using that system. So 
you could have a ranger class, or you could have a fighter who specializes in archery, who is an outdoorsman, and whatever. Yeah. So, what is your intention going forward? Are you trying to have a large number of classes, or are you trying to keep, you know, what, what size of class pool do you envision Dungeons and Dragons having going forward, and what, you know, what amount do you think backgrounds and specialties and stuff are going to be used to replicate those classes? Yeah, so the key thing is going to be, for us, when we look at a character class, there's actually, it's really interesting the ways we could go, and, and I'm actually pretty happy with how the Sorcerer came out, but we'll see obviously how it does well, you know, holds up in playtest. Yeah. But one of the things this kind of prompts us, if we live in a world where you could be a fighter and take a specialty in a background to look kind of like a ranger, we could either say, okay, the ranger can just become that, or we could say, well, let's take a ranger and let's like, not necessarily move it away from that thing, because that's kind of what a ranger is, but is there something we can add or something, an important detail the ranger we can bring out and make more, more prominent and make the ranger a little bit different from that guy. So with the sorcerer, for instance, uh, when we looked at um, you know, the idea of the sorcerers have a bloodline, that's something which was in third edition. But we also kind of felt like you know, just making the sorcerer just have a bloodline, uh, and otherwise just look a lot like a wizard. And also we had this, this idea of, well, maybe we should be doing an alternate casting mechanism, you know, because people have been asking for that with spell points. Well, what does it actually represent in the world, and what can we do to make the sorcerer even more different from the wizard? So there wouldn't be any question of, you know, if you want to play a sorcerer, it is really different from the wizard. It's got a really different story, a different mechanism. So you're not just looking at this, well, this is just a class with a different background or thing. And that's when we looked at, you know, saying, okay, the sorcerer's origin isn't just a bloodline. It could be any number of things. Essentially, the sorcerer's souls infused with magic. And the sorcerer is kind of constantly having to fight to control that magic. And that's where the idea of willpower comes in, right? The sorcerer burns out willpower mentally exhausts him or herself to shape this magic into spells. And as you lose that willpower as it goes down, that innate magical nature, that sort of magical soul inside, starts to manifest itself more and more. So you get the sense if you're a dragon sorcerer and you're running low on willpower because you've been casting spells, you might start to, like, your skin starts to turn to dragon scales. You get, like, almost draconic visage to your face. You know, you start getting a bit bigger and stronger. You're almost like turning into this other thing that rests inside of you, but you're not ex- maybe you're not exactly even sure what that is. Maybe that thing also seems to have some weird other personality that's pressing against your own. You know, things like that, where it's a very different story than being the wizard. And the same thing with the warlock, where you know it is another academic spellcaster, but it's a very it's like the difference between an English major and a computer science major. Very different approaches to things, right? This idea of you're, you're uncoding, you're uncovering the, the source code of the universe versus studying magical formulas, you know, physics and things. So I think that's where, and I was talking to James White about this last night, where the really nice thing with the playtest is as we get away from the four core, I think we can afford it to be a little different with things. Because we know if we do a ranger that's really different and it's, you know, and we just do something, I'm just make something up, right? Rangers fly helicopters and blah, 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 something stupid, right? Oh, this is so different, right? And you guys get a chance to tell us where it is, right? And then we can throw we it out. We are going to do that. Yeah. Well, that's Airwolf. That's my next obsession. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I knew that show could pay off eventually. I kept hitting the early 80s action TV shows. I get a laugh. But the, uh, but yeah, so that's the kind of thing. But, but it gives us some, some flexibility because we could say, well, you know, since... And also the really nice thing of having a simple core is we can cook up a ranger who maybe we have a little bit of a different emphasis and the goal will be you can go, okay, that's always been part of the ranger, but that's kind of being pulled to the front now and the martial aspect may be getting pushed a little bit to the back because you could play that martial guy as a fighter, but this is actually hopefully if we do it right, oh, that's really interesting, that's really cool. I always, wow, that's, I didn't know I wanted this ranger until I saw it, but now oh, I, I like rangers, I really want to play this ranger even more now. Yeah. You know, things like that. 
Yeah, it, really what, when it comes down to it, when, when we're looking at you know, the classes that are going to start showing up in the play test, the question we ask ourselves is what meaningful place does this class have in the world? Uh, if a class is simply a kind of a riff on another mechanic or really could just be expressed as a fighter with a background, then either the class is in jeopardy yeah. or, we, or we push it uh, in the direction that Mike is talking about. Yeah. We, 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 put, we, we get out our spades and we start digging to find out where's the gold hiding in this class um, that is first and foremost narrative gold. You know, where, where it, the thing that, that says about that class, I am unlike any other class in this game, and not for mechanical reasons. But for reasons that people in the fantasy world could see, I mean, and that's that's one of the reasons why, like the the, the current take on the sorcerer is bold. You know, if you are a sorcerer, you aren't just a wizard with a different spellcasting mechanic. I mean, because again, in our in our conception, that's not a class. Yeah. Uh, that that you are you are people in the world could point at you and say, "My God, that person is transforming into a dragon." Exactly. Um, you know that that. And so that's what I mean. It's, like, it's evocative. Yeah. And, and, oh, sorry. And, yeah. and that's one of the real key things, too, to think of is if you're playing this character, not in terms of the mechanics, but in terms of the story, and that's where we really started with those, how do we make that a different experience? So if you're playing the warlock, you're thinking, okay, I got this patron. It's almost kind of like, I think it was in Spawn, where the hero had this kind of like demon kind of guy that was his kind of men not mentor, or, or more like Elric or something like that, right. a more personal relationship. And this idea of uh, pacts and bargains, and like, okay, you have a pact with this, this really jealous fae... Um, power who wants to be really attractive so she's taking away your physical looks right you, you lose your reflection in the mirror because you keep bargaining it away from magical power that's a different story than the wizard or the sorcerer who might have this power that's a little bit dangerous and maybe is unsure of actually using it the reluctant hero in some ways right and obviously you don't want to range but again starting with the, what's the story here if we're going to write a novel about this character what would it be like and Part of it also is we, we take very seriously the idea of class that goes all the way back to first edition, and that is that classes are meant to be these really powerful archetypes that people in the world sort of cluster into. And one of the dangers uh, in any edition of the game where classes start just like jumping out of the woodwork over the life of the game where it's like, and then now suddenly we have 15 new classes all sort of representing very fringe things in the world is if, if you're approaching it from an archetypal standpoint and you're a storyteller, you start having kind of strange narrative static. Like, where were these people? You know, if, if, the, if this is a big archetype, where did it suddenly come from? And sure, you can off, that can often lead to an awesome story. You tell, you know, you're suddenly telling the story of, well, where did these people just come from? So it's not always a bad thing. Handled well, it can actually be quite awesome that suddenly this archetype emerges. But you do it too many times, and it starts losing its impact. And, and again, often, those cool new twists could instead be expressed as just here are some new options for the existing archetypes. Yeah. Uh, another, another goal of ours that I will reveal at this point, uh, having to do with classes, is we are also... What? Nothing. Are you afraid of what I'm going to reveal? No. It was kind of full of portent, like you were about to say, and it's true that Mike killed the butler. Yes, well... With the pizza. Well, yes, no. while Rodney watched. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, the, the, the other goal we have is we want to make it so that if a group wants a really simple, 
an old school experience. They can take the four core classes, take backgrounds and specialties, and get close to expressing almost all the archetypes that the other classes help express. Uh, so that if a person wanted to just say, we're just playing with these four classes, and because we have all these options and the options within the classes, we're done. And, and so we, we are very serious about delivering that as an option. Yeah, I'm a fighter that takes the Acolyte specialty, and all of a sudden I'm not that far from a Paladin. Right. But again, like when you're talking about the, how close that is, mechanically speaking, I mean, these guys have done a great job of illustrating where we start with the story. Mechanically speaking, I also think there's a difference in being good at something and being the best at something, right? I mean, that Ranger might be good at, like, you might be able to build a fighter that's good at archery and uh, have some wilderness skills, but that Ranger needs to be better than that at whatever it is we focus on, whether that's exploration or the nature craft element or what have you. Right. Yeah, because again, there, make no mistake, there will be a ranger, yeah. there will be a paladin, but they aren't just going to be the equivalent of another class with a few options added. Their, their, their footprint in the world needs to be big to justify their existence. Yeah. Cool. Next question. So, in the, uh, in the history of the game, um, there's been classes typically had a heavy been a heavy concept with character building, with race and background and these other things kind of taking secondary secondary roles to the point where uh, race was almost inconsequential at some point in time in, in character creation. Um, and so, is there any um, intentional uh, direction and design towards making these concepts heavier? Exactly. And so, to, to kind of even piggyback on what you were just talking about about having the original four core types and then being able to generate the options. Even looking back to original D and D with the elf, I mean, it, like the concept was the race, not right. necessarily the class. Right. And so, um, so the uh, direction towards making the races a heavier concept, or being able to, as you're advancing, making yourself more elf-like, like, and, and being able to, to tease out the as aspects of race through advancement. For for now, we we are focusing primarily on making the starting version of the races big and evocative. And that's what Mike was getting at earlier. Uh, we're not just going to have the dwarf be resistant to poison. He's immune to it. So that's, that's sort of this cranking it up. Because what that, what that does is that makes it so that no one, no one has to question when the dwarf is present. Right? Because when everyone else is falling over from the drow's poison darts, the dwarf is pulling those darts out and hurtling toward them with his battle axe. Um, and again, we're, we're going for big. And, that, and that's one way we can make the race stand out more. Yeah. yeah. One, oh, sorry. Um, I'll just say that's a static concept. Yes. Like, that's a decision made mm -hmm. with a single data. It's a decision, single decision point. And so that's what I'm asking. Like, are you looking at additional decision points? Potentially. We, it, yeah. we, we have actually a, we, we have had versions of the design that haven't made it out of the building where there were higher level versions but and, and so it isn't it isn't a concept that is off the table but it has it does have narrative challenges right. it, it's probably more likely so with say within the front realms we might give teeth to things like saying okay if you want to play a blade singer you do have to be an elf or a half elf 
you know, you could think of the, the dwarven defender prestige class or it had to be, you had to be a dwarf. You know, and so I think what I, what I would like to do rather than say, because to me there's just this kind of funny questions about nature versus nurture again, like what right. is your biology? How did you but, become more human? Yeah, but, but, but finding ways where you can say, well, within dwarven society there is this, you know, special guild of warriors or something like that, so, and you can join it or, you know, it might be under a special, that may be like that's a specialty or whether that's a prestige class or however else we want to do it. The, uh, it lets us sort of fortify those things by also, again, tying you back into the setting. So it's not like you just decided, like, you know, I'm going to be more, like, a, more human today, right? It's more, you know, because we, we totally see the appeal of that, because some people like really like playing dwarves, right? And I think, I always want to play a dwarf. So, so again, kind of attacking it more culturally, it's like, okay, I want to play the dwarf, you know, battle rager, you know, things like that. And it, you know, and you're always drunk, and you're kind of like, okay, that makes sense, because that's what dwarves are like, so... Uh, I was here yesterday for the uh, DM panel, mm -hmm. and something that was mentioned by you guys quite a lot is about returning DM agency. But along with that, there's a lot more advice and information that needs to be given to the DM. So my question was around how much more information do you need to give to players, considering, as Mike mentioned yesterday, the game can be a little bit opaque to new players sometimes. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and as a DM, I only have so, only so much room from what I'm doing to help my players learn the game. Yeah. The, and Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things the uh, I'm going to use the example of some other games and how they've sort of handled that, uh, and kind of what they've tried to do. So I am a miniatures war gamer slash painter, and one and I used to also play a lot of Magic. And one of the things I used to really like about uh, Games Workshop and what they did, and miniatures gaming in general now. The uh, actually I haven't played 40k in a long time. But there's this idea of like when you're not playing, you still even if you're not painting or playing currently, there's still this idea that painting's a hobby, and you can get better at it. You can watch tutorials, you can read articles and stuff. And I think that a lot of the stuff we talked about yesterday with DMs also applies to players. And that can range just from like here are some common tactics to use when exploring dungeons and having a conversation with people. Like right now, if we post a new article you know, on the website, a lot of the times it's like here's some new feats, right? And here are some new powers. And, and I really like to get away from that and talk more about the hobby of D&D, playing the game. Like, here are some great techniques. You know, let's have, you know, a fantasy author come in and give us, here are the ten tips making really vivid NPCs. You know, here is, like, you know, the five things you should ask yourself when you're building your, your, your setting or, or designing a city. Or, or for players, right? Like, here are some, you know, here are some great stories from, like, you know, myth or just, you know, whatever fantasy fiction that's out there that can help inform making an interesting character. And then especially, you know, I kind of described, you know, for the people who weren't here yesterday, I kind of, and I think I use this analogy, that the thing with trying to get people into D&D &D is that D&D &D is a very, it's like a, it's like a black box to people. It's opaque. If, uh, if you want to learn how to play D&D &D and you're relying on someone just trying to describe it to you, it's pretty hard. Like, I don't know if, I'm sure a lot of you have had this, this kind of interaction where someone's like, oh, D&D, &D, what do you do? Is that the game where you dress up like an elf and run around in your backyard with a foam sword? Like, no, that's this other game that I love to play. You should try that sometime. But this is D&D, &D, you know. The, uh, and, and so when you describe to people, and I think they just kind of see it as like, well, okay, so I'm making decisions and I have a character. Like, they don't really see it. As opposed to like, hey, do you want to go bowling? And someone's like, bowling, what's that? Oh, you have this bowling ball and you roll it down the lane. You're trying to knock the pins over. Like, okay, you can picture that, right? Because it's just, it's a physical activity. Uh, I did a recent interview with, uh, uh, and I kind of mentioned, it's almost like trying to describe to someone like, you know, how algebra works, right? Well, what's algebra? Well, you're trying to solve for X because X is a shifty little letter that no one understands what it means. <laughs> and so the, uh, you know, and it's like kind of hard to describe it because it's like until you do it, Anything that's really intellectual, it's mentally driven, it, it's until you do it, it's really hard to really understand it. So I think that's where, especially with like uh, 
online resources where we can just say, hey, I, you want, I want to learn what D&D is. Well, here, go to this website and you will learn everything. You know, rather than trying to hide that away or rather having that focus on here's how to build an optimized character or like here's how feats work. Because really, that stuff, it isn't, if you have someone who wants to learn how to play D&D, the important thing to teach them is not how their feats work or how to optimize their character, but here is how it's, what it's like to play a game where there are no boundaries, where you can try anything. And when trying anything is actually usually the fun thing to do and it makes it interesting. Yeah, I will say uh, one of the things we are doing consciously, mechanically, is for uh, for the player who's learning how to play for the first time, make sure there are choices in there that are still good, valid choices, but that maybe fade into the background or uh, don't quite take up as much processing power. So, like, I sit my first-time player down to play the game, and we get to specialties. Well, we got the, the survivor specialty in there who just gets some extra hit points and an extra hit die, right? And, like, we, we've consciously made the choice to include that as a straightforward option that fades into the background because now that's one less thing that that player has to think about. Yeah. Whereas the player that is more experienced, that does want more complexity, can choose something else that has more active abilities and those two characters aren't that far apart from each other yeah. uh, as far as you know, balance or what have you goes. But those two players are getting something very different out of that same system. And yeah. I think that in everything we do, I mean look, look at the some of the racial stuff. Instead of being active things that I buttons I have to press or bonuses or what have you, it's big immunities or it's more hit points, bigger hit dice, more bigger weapon dice, etc. Things that make it easy for that player to jump in and play so they can focus on the exciting part of D&D, which is what happens at the table. Yeah. And what I really want the mechanics to do, for be- especially for beginners, when you're trying to get them to think, hey, kind of think like your character, think about the story, mm-hmm. is make sure those mechanics make sense when you do that. So that, like the dwarf being a good example, like let's say in your adventure you're starting out uh, you know, you're in an alchemist's shop and the alchemist spills some chemicals and it makes a, a cloud of poison gas. And like, oh, somebody needs to run in and help the guy. The, pl- the guy, the newbie playing the dwarf thinks, hey, wait, I'm immune to poison. I can do that. Just like a dwarf would, a dwarf would think, a dwarf without hesitating, would go, oh, I'm not, whatever, it's just some smoke, it's not hurting me. It just runs inside and pulls the guy out. Or when you look at how he sort of did the fighter right now where you have this expertise die, you can spend it for a bonus to damage, or you can spend it to parry an attack. Well, we want to have this feel of, I can be aggressive, or I can be more defensive. And the other nice thing about the mechanic is if the new player misses with his attack, he still has something like, oh, okay, I'm still a fighter. I'm still, like, when the, when I miss the orc and the orcs, like, fire their bows at us or come and attack us, I still have a thing I get to do that no one else can do because I'm the fighter. I'm the guy who will block the attack with my sword because I'm the warrior. I'm good with weapons as opposed to the cleric of the room. So. And, and even our, our background and specialty system, in addition to having this strong narrative approach that we've talked about quite a bit, uh, those, those two systems arose very early on in our design from a desire to make it easier for people to quickly make their, play, their characters in play. Uh, and so that's why, uh, rather than picking a bunch of individual skills and a bunch of individual feats, which, again, you'll be able to do if that's what you want to do, but our default approach is you pick a background, you pick a specialty, you're done. And, and, and the specialty will even keep delivering feats to you as you level up, if, if you so choose. You can just keep taking the, the feats that it gives to you, and you're done. And so there are, there are already things like that that we're putting into the game specifically to address the game's historical opacity um, and to make it easier for people to dive into the game. And, but to dive in, as we keep emphasizing, thinking first and foremost about the stories they're going to tell. Hi. Um, I'm going to ask a question here. Um, are you going to include open-ended effects in the new game? 
Um, I'm of the opinion that probably most of the complaints about fourth edition resolve around or revolve around the lack of open-ended effects. People will come to me and say, well, there's no role-playing. There wasn't any role-playing rules in the previous editions either. I mean, there's only combat. Well, there's only combat in the previous edition. What was missing was illusions, shapeshifts, shape yep. changes, summons. Yeah. That's what they're missing. Not expressing clearly, yeah. but that's what they're missing. And I'm afraid that if you, including, of course, has that game balance issue, which yeah. I don't know if we care about, but oh, we do. Yeah. it's there. Um, <laughs> we do care about it. Well, I mean, as soon as you give a, a wizard open up an effect, you suddenly make that the most powerful. Exactly. And, and that's the trick is to make sure that if we're giving you something open ended, that it's going to go around. It's going to, this is, I think, the real trick to it. That has to go through the DM. Because if you want to have an illusion, like there's this idea of illusions, like, oh, it's going to make a saving throw. And then the, the, the illusionist player kind of gets to describe what the monster does or something like that. That can work in some games, but I think it's best if you have the DM start making a lot of judgment calls because we can't predict everything. Right. And I think what's nice there then is the DM, uh, you know, there's the plausible, like, whether things are plausible or not, like, or people are trying to game the system. And I think that's the number one thing I'd want to teach DMs, or one of the number one things, like number one and like one C or whatever, that you know, don't be afraid, like don't let the rules tell you what to do if you know someone is gaming the rules. Like if someone has found a gap, like okay, that's not plausible, that doesn't make any sense, you know, just shut it down, don't let it happen, right? Because the DM is going to be the ultimate arbiter of like what makes sense about this reality. But I do think that's a huge part of it, and I think a lot of, um, in a lot of ways, it's just making sure that we're kind of you know. When we look at our spells, and this is actually kind of a thing that might be a little, I don't know, controversial or whatever, but part of the problem is with the wizard is you have a, like 30 spells at first level and like 20 spells at second level and 20 more spells and 20 more spells. There's so many spells that there's no... Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's cool, but, but it's, it makes it much harder for us to see all those interactions. So one of the nice things that they would play test and taking our time is we can put in, hey, here's your first ten spells. <laughs> then here's five more. And we can kind of layer them in. And we can, I bet you there's going to be a point we're going to see where we add these three new spells and suddenly everyone's unhappy. Oh, wait a sec, this is a broken combo, right? The, um, a lot of the, what I'm more worried about, like, actually, spells like fly don't worry, uh, don't worry me as much. In my experience playing 3E, a spell like fly... The wizard would end up, it was more a headache for the DM if the entire party was flying. Mm -hmm. But if one character is flying, okay, that one guy can get over the chasm and stuff. I think as a DM, you can kind of find ways uh, narratively to deal with that. Archers. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm more worried about... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're in a dungeon, right? What I'm more worried about are things like the wizard, say, casts web... So now everyone's trapped. Then the wizard casts Stinking Cloud. Then he casts Evard's Black Tentacles. And you get this stacking thing. It's just like, okay, like Sauron comes around the corner. And three minutes, three seconds later, he's like getting pulled. He's like this. And he's just nothing. He's got so many saving throws to make. And it's just like, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? It's just, you know, it's like you just imagine like Doctor Doom, right? Like getting humiliated. It's just like, it just takes a lot of it. Like, the, like this, you know, the, the drama and tension of the game. And especially once you start replicating that, where it's like, well, like no one's really a threat as long as we cast these three spells. They're now, you know, uh, the, you know, they're our puppet, right? So I think that's a lot of what we have to watch out for. I'm not, so I'm not as worried about damage. I'm not worried as about as worried about things that are more problem solving, especially things that are like again going back to fly, right? When you look at a rogue, oh, the rogue's really skilled. He's he's stealthy. He can get past traps. He can talk his way past anyone. Nobody thinks, oh, and rogues can fly, right? Like I think people are just okay. You can kind of accept that supernatural. But um, you'd want to, like, because uh, I, I mentioned this in one of my online columns, we'd want to make sure things like if there is an archetype in the game, like the rogue who's super stealthy, the spells that deal with stealth, 
the party thinks, hey, if we're smart, we put the spell on the road. Right. right. It's better to take a stealthy guy and make him stealthier than, hey, I'm the wizard, I'm, okay, I'm stealthy, I'm disarming all the traps and all this stuff. So you still have that sense of magic, and we are hopefully giving you that open-ended sense, but you also kind of see, hey, the smart adventure, because in the world of D&D, that's what we'd hope would play out if we just to set this thing in motion and step back and come back in five years. Okay, the rogues are still the stealthy guys. You know, the Thieves Guild isn't overrun with wizards, you know, for instance. Uh, the fighter is, wow, he is the warrior, right? If you need a monster defeated in melee or just taken down, the fighter's the guy. You know, the party, and I've seen this happen in campaigns, right? You meet, like, the, the humanoid army, and you're like, okay, pull out your champion, and we'll pull our champion, and they'll fight. And then you have, like, the hill giant barbarian comes to the monster army, and then the sorcerer comes, you know, just, like, spell, 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 done, right? Like, Evar's black tentacles, web, you know, and everyone's just, oh, that's just, you know, that's kind of disappointing. So, but yeah, I, I do really like the, the idea of opening spells, because I think that, again, creative play, but also giving that to other players whether by emphasizing skill checks and letting everyone take advantage of that, whether it's through a spell or through a, a clever use of a skill so, or an ability check. And, and again, we, we are particularly keen on bringing back more of the open-ended, open-ended effects that are not necessarily about combat, but more about exploration, social interaction, because this, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. We want to make the lovers of a particular class love it. And what a lot of our data collection has shown us is that people who love wizards, the spells that they identify most often with that class as being the most iconic, the things they love doing as a wizard, are not actually the attack spells. Yeah, that was really interesting. It's, yeah. it's I get to create illusory terrain. Yeah. You know, yeah. I get to comprehend any language. Yeah. You know, it's those that's what a person associates with a wizard. And yeah. this is actually one of the reasons why we have returned to a more open-ended spell preparation system, not forcing every wizard to have X number of attack spells prepared every day, because there are times when a wizard wants to fill their daily complement of spells with things that are going to help them around town, you know, because you might have an urban adventure where, like, the wizard does not want fireball prepared. And you know he maybe he, your wizard doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> but then, but then another, but then another wizard. That's your diplomacy check. My sixty-six. Yeah. <laughs> Is that meat that he see? Yeah. But then there might be another wizard who does. And and so again, this is about letting people craft these classic characters in the ways that not only resonate with them, but also resonate with the stories that we tell. You know, because tales of wizards are not about wizards constantly blowing people up. You know, often <laughs> have you played Dungeons and Dragons? I, I don't mean if you're sure. I played a lot of wizards, and yeah, the, the, the 66 fireball is the response to the wizard strike. I mean, I, yeah, the key word is just. <laughs> I, I said they are not just about wizards blowing things up. There are many tales about people. Do you include people and things. <laughs> <laughs> Places. Wizards are many, doing often many other things, transforming things, blowing up ideas. <laughs> this is coming from a man who I have never seen play a wizard. Right, because you, you've never, well, how often have you DM'd me? I, but I have played with you. Right, but you always play the wizard. This guy always has for good. Or the cleric. Yeah, exactly. Around in the office, it, it, and now I know this is good, not to bag on you too much, but I always kind of think of Jeremy as like the Gandalf of the group because just <laughs> the way he's like, I must warn you now, though, if you seek to travel through the land of, of adding too many powers to this class, peril shall fall upon you. You're not just like, oh, yes. <laughs> I'm gonna buy you like. It's my time. job. It's, it's it is his job. Yeah, it is my job to be the wizard. Yeah. 
but I'm not really, I'm, I'm like kind of like Pippin in some way that somehow like got put in charge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like the next question. Please, please say this. Um, so one of the things I noticed was in 3.5, um, dealing with magic items, there were a whole slew of them that were just like increase your stats a whole lot, and you really had to, there was really a set group that you had to get in order to stay competitive. And fourth, a lot of them were just use them once in combat, and then it's useless the entire rest of the day. And I was wondering what goals you were having for uh, magic items in the new edition. Now this is something we, we talked about quite a bit in the DM panel yesterday. Um, we want magic items to be... Uh, Wondrous, and a big change in how we are designing the game is we are not building our math with the expectation that player characters have particular magic items at particular levels. Magic items are additive. Uh, they, are, they are truly a reward. And, and we want to make it so that if you have an item, you feel awesome having that item. Uh, whether it's you know wings of flying, you know rather than it being whoop, you know you can use it for you know a minute and wah, you can't use it the rest of the day. No, if you if you have managed to got, get an item that wondrous, you can use it. Yeah. Um, and but similarly, because of how we're dealing with the underlying math of the game, this means that certain simple items like a plus one magic sword. That sword will be relevant for most of your character's all career. Of all of it. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. always good. Yeah, it's always good. Yeah, because because the entire number scale of the game has come down, and there is not the automatic scaling that there's been in in the recent editions. That plus one is always going to serve you well. Yeah. In general, what this largely means is that we're going to put a lot of the distribution of magic items into the hands of the DM, and then instead of trying to build our limitations into the game's mechanics, instead educate the DM about, okay, here's what it means when you're giving out these items. You need to know what the implications of giving out this item is, etc. Yeah. yeah, and then you know when if if a DM is running a setting like Eberron where it is assumed that people can create magic items and buy them, we will provide guidance for how to adjudicate that. But our default assumption is that magic items are items of old, you know, from ancient kingdoms. And, you know, certain characters will be able to create, you know, minor magic items of this or that sort, but, but the greatest magic uh, is waiting out waiting out there for you to find on your adventures. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, this is actually not a question, but a plea. <laughs> Psionics. You always put it in late in the game, it always causes it to never, ever catch on. Could you please throw it in soon? Like maybe at the beginning. <laughs> we, um, I think, already have a clever plan for Psionics. Cutting I don't want to say Yeah. Actually, we know we do. <laughs> we, we hope we do. You will tell us at some right, point. Right. The play tells right. us if we do. Yeah. Well, we know it's clever. We just don't know if it's good. Because <laughs> <laughs> there is a distinction. If I can quote, I believe it was uh, Nigel Tufnell who once said, there's a fine line between stupid and clever. Yeah. So, I think it was mm. Nigel's final tap. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. So I started playing D&D in second ed, and it was the first game I ever played, and it was amazing. So much holy crap, I can do anything I want. It's not just a video game, I'm not on rail, you know? Um, and I had no idea that the mechanics were, and no, I don't have anybody crap. Uh, <laughs> Faco is such a weird concept. Third, third ed came around, and it's like, yes, 
add numbers instead of take away. That just makes sense. Um, and, and that let everything stack on and it was brilliant. Um, and then when Fourth Ed came out, um, I had no idea that a game could be as dynamic in combat as that game. It's insane. Fighters are not just dudes that come up and slap each other with weapons all day long. Um, and everything I've heard in terms of the story and everything you guys have been talking about sounds amazing. And I like that the narrative is becoming much more important. Second Ed had the archetype characters, and Fourth Ed had the archetype characters, and that was neat that that sort of came back. But the uh, in terms of uh, the combat stuff, I'm a little bit afraid because I love fourth edition combat. And it sounds like the game is going to be leaning much more on the third end combat and maybe second end combat a little bit, where it's much more linear. You don't have the like dynamic power type things. That have, have you taken a look at the new fighter? I have not. Oh, okay. <laughs> so is this everything? Yeah, because the the, the, the fighter with his expertise dies. We're has definitely the in the direction. I think. Yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I'm sorry to jump in here, but like, I think that this is going to be one of the things that you'll see is that since we are starting with such a, a tight focus on the core of the game, there's just less, op there's fewer options, frankly, right? And so as we go on, like, we've made these changes to the fighters, made the fighter much more dynamic, and then the fighter will, in turn, get a few more options and things like that, that as we go forward, that's one of the things we definitely want to iterate on. Now, um, do you want to say something about sort of general philosophy behind... Do you want well, well one, thing, one thing we talked about, specifically about the fighter day before yesterday, is... Like I talked about earlier in this panel about the cleric, the, fight, the fighter is, is a delicate design problem uh, because there are actually people uh, who want that class to be as simple as I swing my sword. Um, and, and traditionally, that is the, the go-to class for many people who are new to the game, uh, they don't want to have to, you know, be considering different spell options and different combat maneuvers, and they just they want to get that weapon in their hand and, and stick it in things. Um, on the other hand, we know we have many, many people who do also love the more tactical fighter, especially um, the fighter that we had in fourth edition. And so the, the balancing act that, that we are currently uh, performing is trying to find the sweet spot where we can deliver within the fighter, a path that leads to the super simple experience, yeah. but then also a path that if, should you choose to opt into it, into that, that tactically rich, rich experience that many other players like. Yeah. And, and so the, the uh, combat superiority system that is in the fighter currently is, is paving the way in, in that direction. Yeah, one other thing I will say is that what's really important about this in my mind is that the end result for your character has the options that you want to give you that dynamic experience. Whether that comes from class or specialty or race or a combination of all those, uh, or even I was going to say we've, we've done talking about a tactical combat module and stuff like that where you know if you really like the grid-based combat, that's just sort of another element. What's really important is that the end result gives you the satisfying experience. So we're focused more on getting you to that point and then also getting you to the the point where the civil fighter is, etc., uh, as opposed to trying to pack it all into necessarily one place. So, again, there's the there's the simpler specialties and the more complex specialties, etc. So it's it's not all going to come from one place. I think the you will also initially see fewer of the grid based options that you saw in fourth edition, for example, because our design 
uh, of the core system does not assume the use of miniatures. So there are, there are certain things that we simply can't include initially uh, because there are certain effects in fourth, especially a lot of applications of forced movement that assume the use of a grid. That said, we are already emulating many of the effects that you're familiar with in fourth, but doing it in a way that will work with or without a grid. Uh, because our assumption is that many people will probably use miniatures for at least a few encounters in every adventure, but we're not going to assume that people are using miniatures for every single encounter. Uh, because as many of you have probably already experienced in your playtests, even if you're used to using miniatures for every encounter, there can be a, a wonderful relief. And, and I say this, at, by the way, as a person who loves to use minis in my D&D games. I've done so since first edition. But there are certain encounters where it's kind of a, ah, oh, we just were able to roll some dice, describe it, and we were done with this battle in five minutes of real time. You know, because it's just a quick skirmish with the orcs at the gate. This doesn't need to turn into, you know, the massive set piece. But sometimes, ah, oh, I love the set piece. But again, it just, it's about giving people, this is again going back to the theme of giving people options, not forcing a style of play. And that's why we're not going to assume the use of miniatures. But we will absolutely support the use of miniatures because many of us are going to use them yep. and do use them now. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. I'm excited. Cool. <laughs> well, Mike actually told me to ask a hard question. So I don't actually, this is not going to be too hard. But, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess a quick comment, which is uh, I cruise through the, the backgrounds and the specialties, um, and I'm, I'm actually very excited. I think it's a really great idea. And I, I had a, a thought that I realized you're probably going to do just do it down the road, which is you know the interaction, like I said, nature versus structure, which is interesting intellectually. But you know you can interact races right now in the core. All the special, all the backgrounds are open to and specialties all races. But later on, you can have ones that are just open to some or modifications. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So that's, that's really, I'm really excited to see what you'll end up doing that for each setting. Um, sort of um, a question with a little bit of a, a caveat lead-in. So with regard, I just noticed with regard to, hopefully not too much criticism, with regard to the backgrounds, the traits are obviously fairly meant to be well played out. But, but two quick questions. Some of them seem much more easier to mechanically implement. Like, you know, if you're a commoner, you get a farm, I can put a number of farm, right? And then the thug one is pretty simple. You know, if you, if you go to any, anything that's like, Fairly level, you just, you just get the money itself. The three others are more nebulous and not as mechanically specified. And I guess the second sort of connected question is some of them are more scalable and seem more clearly usable at like yeah. the stage one, you know, at the mm -hmm. advanced levels you get them. Others, like the fun one, less scalable. And I was wondering, and you could look at the interaction A, is there a thought to maybe, um, and you know, the caveat is. If you know if you have good enough DM, of course you don't need a because I'll be everything describes all. But you know the reason we have mechanics is you know, a for convenience and b you know to help DMs of all skill levels, right? So it's so a thought of maybe making them a little or adding a bit more mechanical framework. And the second one is is there a thought of adding maybe scale more advanced? You know, like if you're a soldier, yeah. presumably you might rise the rank for private or you know turn into a major. Is there a thought of adding that? 
Yeah, I, I think the goal with them would be for those traits to look a lot like the, the racial abilities we talked about, like turning those up. And a lot of the kind of roughness there is mainly attributable to where we are in the design process. Uh, it's a relatively new concept. It's something we really haven't had to design before. And um, it's really going to come down to making sure, rather than having it grow, because one of the things to say, the, the, the soldier example you gave, we can't really predict if that would make sense in the campaign world, right? Like, is your character still in the military? Or are you a, a veteran, right, if you left, things like that. But what we could try to make sure we do is things where that mechanic is equally useful at first level, as it is at fifth level, as it is at tenth level. Like the dwarf, the dwarves being in need of poison. So it's something that's always relevant, like once you've made that choice, because we want that to be a big interesting choice, you know, especially for the trade. It's something that's going to stick around, just like being very good at finding hidden stuff is just always good. So. One very last thing, I know this is like connected, which is that... You know, there's one thought, which is the background is just your past, it's done, now you make a new story, right? And, and then, you know, so that, that's just what you have, and so maybe it shouldn't change, but, you know, sometimes people have multiple careers, so is there ever thought about, you know, you know I'm, I'm not a soldier anymore, I lose my rank, and now I'm going to become a merchant, you know, the, new job, you know? One of the, there has been some discussion about whether specialty and background should somehow be merged into one, where there is that element of this is what you used to be, but those things that you used to be could then still be brought into play as new things that you are becoming, like the sage, where it's like, okay, I want to take an option to become a sage now, and I can get access to that trait and stuff. So that's definitely something we, we've considered. Um, and, and, and we also assume that for many characters, their backgrounds are not just what they were. Many of them are still that thing. Well, I mean, it should, yeah, it should yeah, still have that. Yeah, because they, I mean, it's, it's very clear simply in the benefits that they're receiving from their background that the things they learn stay with them for their entire life because, yeah. you know, the skills they gain, they have those skills for their entire adventuring career. And many people will decide that, like the sage, that character is always a sage through the entire campaign. You, in some campaigns, they might decide that the the soldier is still a member of the military and right. is still a soldier. And I guess that would add to the, you know, would you add mechanics for making it scalable up? Like Potentially, yeah. 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 Exactly. I mean, the 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 main thing is for the background to remain this evocative way of describing your character, of gaining some skills, gaining a trait. But without this turning into sort of a new mechanical bucket that starts expanding out of control. Yeah, exactly. Um, and because we, we have all seen that happen in, in previous editions, where something that starts as this very sort of this thing with a light, evocative footprint suddenly is like it's starting to grow to the point where it's competing with class and its importance and its mechanical weight. Yeah. Uh, so again, it's about finding you know, what, what's the right amount. And, and, the, and that's what the playtest process is all about. Exactly. Cool. What's next? So, um, yeah, so along the lines of uh, playtests and uh, feedback from players in the community, uh, do you have any system in place that basically streamlines the process of uh, receiving feedback and implementing the feedback yeah. in a yeah, so the most important thing uh, if you is to go to dndnext.com if you haven't signed up when you get the, the packet, make sure you sign up with your email address because what we really what's really driving a lot of it are the surveys we send yes. out. We send out surveys, we, we design them with the sort of uh, people who work at Wizards on like um, on data collection, on customer, you know, sort of market analysis, all that stuff. 
So they make sure that the surveys are, are, you know, are really solid and doing what they're supposed to do. And we let them know, here's what we need to learn about. So in this new packet, we have a new character class, Sorcerer and Warlock. Let's make sure we're looking at how people, what people think of those. Part of it is the science of how they put together the surveys. And part of it is us saying, well, we need to know, do the spell point system, do people like this? Do they see this as a nice alternative to the wizard? So we kind of provide the insight we're seeing, the questions we want answered. Um, and then all that data basically comes in. Um, if you've signed up, you'll get an email and a link to the a web survey. When you take it, all that data goes over to Wizards. We have a team of people. Uh, they do all our marketing research too. This is just basically this is basically kind of treated like market research in terms of the company. Um, and they'll go through, put, put together reports, show us all the raw data. If, if you write anything into the other field, we see that, like it's sent over. Uh, and, and it's kind of funny sometimes, the stuff that shows up in those. With the, uh, you go like, you know, I need to replace a miniature for my Ravenloft board game. It's like, well, I can't help you. <laughs> like, please just call customer service. The, uh, but yeah, so we're really serious about that. And, and we do balance that against seeing things in the forums, on blogs, online. I mean, we definitely look at that stuff. But it's been really interesting looking at those surveys because they're really, I mean, I mentioned at the keynote, a lot of what we need to have happen is get a conversation going between R&D, between Wizards of the Coast, and the D&D fan base. So people are playing D&D, that we have a really nice understanding of each other, right? We know what's important to you guys, and we can act on that. And you guys know that we're listening, and you can reach out and have a conversation with us, and we can push D&D to new heights. Yeah. The, uh, and so that's really critically important to us, because we have learned so much. Like Jeremy mentioned the, the, the survey about spells. We asked people. We just, we just took the 3E spell list, because we're just, well, frankly, because we're lazy. Uh, no, and we, we they were actually some poor. They were, there was, some oh, they were okay. But yes. we just basically time, like, they're like, we have time for a survey. Well, let's ask about spells, because we haven't asked about that yet. And we get the spells out there and ask people, which of these are the most iconic? Which, you know, and it was really interesting. Like Jeremy said, it was all like the utility spells that were really high up there. And things like the buff spells actually came in really surprisingly low. We thought they'd be much higher. So, again, it kind of tells us a lot about our audience that there are some people who to, buffs are really important. But there's a lot more people who this really isn't as key. We don't need to design the game around that. We want to include it in some way, but we don't need to make that the centerpiece. Yeah. So that's what's been really important to yeah, us. Yeah, because it's a really big concern on that because um, so I, I had a friend who was able to play test before even the beta playtest um, came into play. And from what he told me, you know, nothing has changed between the time that he played the playtest and the beta. No, well, I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's that, that, that is so not true. <laughs> that would be, yeah, yeah. This is all I really know is that he started out really excited about it and became really disappointed when the playtest came out. Now, what might be happening, and this is something which we have to keep in mind, right? Whenever we make a decision, we know some people are going to be unhappy. So it's always possible someone looked at it and said, "You really need to change this to make me happy." And we don't like making people unhappy, but we do have to keep in mind that we have to look at what we're seeing as the overall picture. But it's gone through, I think anyone here who's like, how many people here were in like the, the pre-public tests and saw, yeah, like, and how much has changed? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, we are constantly changing this stuff. And even just from the, the last two drafts, it's been big changes, so. Yeah. I, I really can't reinforce the importance of those surveys enough. We've actually had really amazing response. It's funny, our, our, the people that handle our surveys have been saying, like, it is unheard of to get the, like, percentage response that we actually get from the people that have signed up. So please, please, please keep doing that because it is by far the best way for, for us to get your feedback. And, and, and again, uh, and, and for those of you who weren't at the keynote, I mean, this... 
This is one of the largest, if not the largest, playtest that has ever occurred in. It is largest. Yeah, in, in, ta large. in tabletop role playing. Yeah, um, and we have over seventy thousand people. Seventy-five thousand. Seventy-five. And giving that, us that was a week ago. Yeah, and so it just keeps going up. Yeah. So we estimate, considering how many people in the typical group are downloading it, there's probably over one hundred fifty thousand people playing this game right now. So, and that's it would be suicidally stupid for us to not listen to you guys because you guys are the ones who, if you're going to buy the game, you're, you'll probably be the ones who are playing. <laughs> so it's probably not going to do us any good to not listen. I mean, that that's just mad madness. And, so. and it sounds as if many of you know this, but for those of you who don't, uh, there there is a group of people who are under NDA who are seeing versions of the playtest material uh, well before uh, the public playtest packets. So even between uh, the May packet and the one that just came out, there's a group of people who actually saw many iterations of different parts of the game in that intervening time. And so we actually aren't releasing anything in the public playtest that hasn't already been playtested, actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, again, constant iteration. Yeah. And, and also sometimes there are things that people identify as issues that we agree are issues, but we have to let them go in the short term because of some larger goal that we're trying to hit. Yeah. So there are, there are issues, even in the current public packet, that I look at them and in, in, in my professional role, I say that's unacceptable and we will never publish it, but like the version of hold person in the current packet. Those of you who have read it and, and are attuned will know that that will never see publication. Um, uh, and, but this is an iterative playtest process. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes we have to tackle bigger issues, like the whole fighter class. And sometimes we'll have to let certain smaller things go, and, we'll, and we will clean them up the next time. Yeah, I have a whiteboard beside my desk. It's got a hit list on it. Yeah. It's about yeah. 18, 19 items long right now that's just like, fix this next week. And, 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 there, and there are certain things that require enough attention that sometimes we will let them go for a while in their somewhat shabby state, and it makes us cringe. Um, but to do it right, it's going to take enough time mm -hmm. that we don't want to do a half-assed interim measure. We, we put it onto our list of, all right, we're going to tackle this when we have time to tackle it right. Like, we've gotten a lot of feedback about, woo, the weights of things in the equipment chapter are bonkers. We know they're bonkers. But we, we have not had time yet for somebody to do the careful research, but in fact, I have somebody assigned to do this right now on getting much more accurate weights for all of our armors and weapons and other pieces of equipment. But the stuff takes time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's like one of the things I'm wondering about is like, um, like in 4th edition, uh, there was a lot of zone abuse. There was a problem with mm -hmm. zones. And uh, the way that it's getting fixed is probably through individual powers instead of just an overall rules change. Uh, so what I'm wondering is that well, there are uh, if something like that uh, kind of props up in Indian X, um, what will be the process in fixing that? Or well, right, right now we're focused on the playtest, and again, this, this is this is why why we have a two-year process. Yeah. Because because our goal is to address fundamental issues like the, that uh, before the game comes out. Yeah. So so the idea would be like you know we might look with the time of the playtest we can sort of say okay. 
do we just need to change those those individuals' uh, powers or spells, or do we need to change something fundamental in how those are working with the core system? Right. So this approach lets us, instead of having to put a Band-Aid on it, we can take a nice comprehensive look through it. Because it could go either way, right? We might just say we really want to limit the number of spells that are an area of effect that's that's debuffing something, you know, like like a web or whatever. Versus just saying, no, we could come up with a, and you know a, a solution where you just can't overlap those things. But then in the narrative, does it make sense? You can't put two spells in one area. Do you end up with funny things like? And this is, I think, at one point in fourth edition for zones, we're talking about oh, the zones can't, can't overlap. The last zone counts. It's like okay. The, uh, the the drow casts a web and the party members are trapped in it, so the wizard casts light on the area or something like that, right? Which is if it's described as a zone, suddenly the web goes away because there's an area of light but that, there. That's no longer true in yeah. fourth. Right. Yeah. Was that was that, that was did they? I it, can't remember. Whatever. No, it was it was about damage. Yeah. That okay. Yeah. Um, but, but we've seen issues like that, and so we're pretty acutely aware, of making sure that we have the narrative layer and the mechanical layer, and this is what this is going to let us work through and make sure that both of those make sense. And so. and, and also, I mean, that's that's a great example of. Um, a lesson that we have learned very well yes. from fourth, because we, the three of us, work deeply on fourth edition from the start. Um, yeah. I mean, Mike and I have been working on fourth edition since the fourth edition player's handbook. Uh, so that there, there's not a phase in in that edition's life that that we have not been into intimately involved with. So, yeah. we we are bearing many of the lessons forward with us. And, and just recently, we've looked at some area effects that are like zones and said, no, we are not going to repeat you know, this problem. Yeah. Uh, but I'm now going to slide the guy in and out of this zone 14 times. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or if we do, or we say, look, we don't, okay, we want web to be the classic spell that shuts people down. We have to make sure we don't have a thousand other spells like that. Right? So if you, you know, if you decide you want to stack these up, like maybe you get web and it's not until a much higher level you get a, another spell like that that can really exploit it, you know, things like that. And again, that's where the, the survey of the spells is really interesting because a lot of those spells just weren't there, you know, and so maybe we do have more room to maneuver than we thought we had, you know. So. All right, next question. And yeah, thank you. I you were talking earlier about what's iconic about D&D and what's in the public kind of not just gamers, but generally. Uh, there's a song out there uh, that says, clerics keep the fighters hail and hearty, put the wizard in the middle, the castle of light, and never let that thief out of sight. <laughs> I don't see a thief. Well, right now, Right well, now. Sorry, Go. so th this is actually, that's a really good question, right? Because the thief started out as, what's well, the thief? This is the guy you bring into the dungeon to steal stuff. And then when second edition came along, it said, no, now it's a rogue. And, you know, who's can more I, things? Can I say something? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, in second edition was the overall... Yeah, that was the, the, the group category. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but you still had the idea within the Thief character class, you got to put your points where you wanted. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to be, well, I don't really know how to pick locks, I'm more of the sneaky guy. Yeah. The class started to move in that direction because I think what happened with D&D, it's kind of a process I was talking about earlier, where people would say, hey, I want to play a character like this guy. I want to play someone like the Grey Mouser from the, the Fritz uh, Library stories. Well, where does he fit in? He's not really a pickpocket. And like, well, and then you'd think, I want to play someone like Tyrion Lannister. And especially a lot of these guys who were like, well, he's the fast-talking guy, but he's not a bard. He doesn't carry around a loot or something. And so I think what's happened with the rogue specifically is, is the game, which started out with very focused on dungeons, right? A dungeon master, right? You had your dungeon. And as it grew more broad-based, 
of all the classes, I think the rogue was the one, or the thief, that people kind of started to think, well, who is actually in this character class? When you get beyond just finding traps and stuff, how does that interact with these different literary characters you might be trying to create, or these iconic fantasy characters? So what we've, we've tried to do with the schemes is give you, the, within the rogue, this idea of these different types of rogues. And the thief is one, and it's possible like that thief isn't hitting the mark, but that's where we, I would, I would like to see is if hey, you played older editions and you were playing a thief, you look at that thief scheme and think, oh, that, this is exactly what I want to play, because this is exactly the guy, and you're shaking it, <laughs> and it's, it's not there yet, and obviously, and that's why we're doing, you know, getting feedback and all that stuff, so. But that's definitely intention, is that you could see those characters from earlier systems, and, and look at those different expressions, and find them in this game. The, the, you want to make the class work for the people who love it. That isn't one that's hitting people that love it. Yeah. Well, and but again, it's a yet another balancing act because we also have a decade of people who've played third and fourth edition, who many of whom have a different conception. So yeah, it's we we still have we still have a ways to go. Oh yeah, we definitely have a lot of work to do. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the feedback. And uh, this will have to be our last question. Um. With the numbers flattening out and the orc being effective both at lower levels and higher levels, how are we challenging the higher level characters? So one of the nice things about this is while lower level monsters stick around, higher level monsters, things get a lot deadlier a lot faster. Yeah, deadlier faster. Fastier. Fastier, yeah. It's like French for faster, right? Yeah. So one of the interesting things we can do is, and, and this is all kind of, we haven't really addressed things at anything past the 10th level, so this is purely speculation at this stage. But what you might find is uh, monsters, once you start getting at higher levels, you start finding fewer and fewer of those like horde monsters, like orcs or goblins. You start finding a lot more things like a hydra, a chimera, like something you might fight alone. And somewhere in that, like say, 1 to 20 band of levels, you start finding Baphomet, you know, Asmodeus, you know, uh, where, you know, it's like, wow, like at the high end of this range, because we have these very individualized monsters, like one of the ideas we've talked about, we haven't shown off a dragon yet, because we want to make dragons really cool, but I'll give you guys some little insights into where, at least where I'm thinking. You might find that in the monster manual, or whatever, you know, how we're dealing with creatures, we have stat blocks for dragons, but they're not complete, because before you can deploy that dragon into your adventure, it needs a name. And it's going to need its distinguishing traits, and it's going to need its unique powers and abilities. Because every dragon's an individual, right? We might do the same thing with some of our demon types and say, okay, type one demon instead of just rock. And say, of rock, yeah, of rocks are type one demons, but each rock has a true name. Each rock, I mean, because you think of like, you know, the layers of the hierarchy of the abyss, if you make it to type one demon, you're pretty powerful. If you're of rock, you've been around a while. You've probably got a couple tricks that people might not know about. So we can start bringing in these monsters where. It's not just a type one, I'm sorry, I keep saying type one, very old school, right? It's not just a rock you're seeing, it's an individual. It's almost like, these are the evil versions of player characters, right? Like, these are the guys who are the movers and shakers on the bad guy side, and they're moving their way up in the world, and breaking that into some of our monsters. So demons, dragons, devils, these guys are really evocative, and we can really amp up their power level. You know, there's kind of an interesting philosophical debate we're going to have to have at some point with the fan base of when do you first fight a dragon? And I'm defining fight as have a chance of beating it. Because <laughs> the answer could be first level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's just like, when does that actually happen? Because one school of thought is, hey, the game's Dungeons and Dragons. You should fight a dragon pretty early on. I have to admit I'm not in that school. I'm in the opposite school. It's a dragon. When it flies over Lake Town, you run. Right? Like, unless 
unless you're that one crazy hero, either you're crazy because you're low level and you're about to get killed, or no, you're actually the eighth level fighter who's like, okay, everything's gone to hell, it's time to throw down, this is why I'm eighth level, this is why I'm a hero, I'm fighting this dragon. And hopefully you have the rest of the party with you. I think <laughs> yeah. yeah, and some something we, and this will have to be the, the, our closing comment, the, something we have talked about in the other panels is we are looking at doing some very dramatic things at high level. Uh, so really stay tuned uh, because we are looking at doing some things really the game hasn't done before past 10th level. I'm looking at that phase of the game as truly a different phase and not just more of the same. So thank you so much yeah, thanks, uh, for joining us, for your great questions and your feedback. And uh, please keep playing.